This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. Listen to what inspired the storyline, how their covers and titles were chosen, their personal connection to the story, and other fascinating tidbits about the authors themselves. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have any comments about the podcast, I can be reached at Cindy H. Burnett at att.net. Tori Whitaker grew up in the Midwest. She now resides outside of Atlanta, Georgia, where she and her husband of more than 40 years live near their two sons and their families. Tori belongs to the Historical Novel Society and her feature article, Multi-Period Novels, The Keys to Weaving Together Two Stories from Different Time Periods, appeared in the Historical Novels Review. Tori graduated from Indiana University and is Chief Marketing Officer for a national law firm. She's also an alum of the Yale Writers' Workshop. Millicent Glenn's Last Wish is her first novel. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Tori. How are you today? Well, hi, Cindy. I'm great. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here to join me to talk about Millicent Glenn's Last Wish. I really enjoyed your book. Oh, well, thank you. I am thrilled to be here. I I love your podcast. I, I listen all the time, and I think you do some really good author interviews, so I'm excited to be one. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, why don't we begin with you telling me a little bit about the book? Millicent Glenn's Last Wish is a dual timeline story, and when it opens in the modern day in Cincinnati, where I was born, Millicent is 90 years old, and she's almost coming to her 91st birthday, and she's pretty spry for her age, but all of a sudden, her 60-some-year-old daughter shows up unannounced, and her daughter Jane has been living out of state for 20 years. So it comes as quite a surprise. And they haven't gotten along all that well, actually, for many years. But Millicent is very glad that she's there. She loves her. And in short order, her granddaughter comes on scene too. And Kelsey is 38 years old. And she lets them know that she's pregnant. So Millie has had two surprises in the short period of time. At the same time, she's come across her or coming up to her 91st birthday. And so these things tend to have an effect of memories come crashing back, memories that are always there, but have come more to the front. And it's really memories of something tragic that happened back in the early 1950s, some six decades earlier. And that was during the post-war early 1950s baby boom when babies were being born left and right and everything. And that kind of ties in with the modern storyline too of the granddaughter's pregnancy. And so the story goes back and forth between past and present because Millie has decided that she needs to tell her daughter and her granddaughter 
this secret that she's held for so many years. And it's something that is related to this tragedy and she feels partially responsible for. And it's something that they know nothing about. And she's afraid that they might not take it well. And yet she's hoping it really bonds them closer together. Well, I was totally intrigued with the concept of family secrets and the idea that something you hold on to can obviously warp the way you look at things, but also it can impact others in different ways. I thought you presented that very effectively. Oh, great. I appreciate that. What inspired you to write this story? Well, one of the inspirations was that I just love dual timeline stories. I've probably read close to 300 books that have that past and present structure. And I particularly like a story where there is an aging character who looks back on her life through new eyes. But there's also a personal connection here. And while the book is completely fictional and these characters are all made up and their lives are made up, there's one thing that is related to the past tragedy that actually draws from something that happened in my family many, many, many years ago. And it was really something my family never talked about. I was at a family reunion, probably around age five or so. And it was one of those big family reunions that we had every year. But I remember hearing some distant cousins, older cousins that I didn't really know, having mentioned this this tragedy. And I don't want to give a spoiler about the book, but it's something that stuck with me and this vision of it. And it really wasn't until all these decades later that I was writing this book that I decided to, to write about this, that I spoke personally with three people who had been close to the woman this had happened with, um, who had been passed away for some years. And each of these three people told me they'd only had one conversation with her in all the years they'd known her. And they each had one distinct detail separate from each other that they told me about this conversation they'd had. So I pulled those little pieces together and then built the whole novel around that. Well, I was surprised, and again, I don't want to give any spoilers either, when I got to your author's note to realize that that portion was something that had actually happened to somebody. So sad. Yes, it is sad. And I think one of the things that I tried to do, I guess, in, in presenting it was that it was very much something of its time and its place of the era that in some ways it was about a woman who didn't have control. What what happened to her was something that was out of her power. So as we look at it from a historical perspective, I think it makes it it interesting. One of the things I also tried to do was because that a tragedy is a difficult part of any book that you read, I think I was cognizant of trying to say, okay, this story is going to take us down, down, down to sort of a dark place in Millicent Glenn's life. But I also try to make it where we're going to, and things sometimes get worse before they get better, but, but then we're going to try to come back up. And I really tried to leave the story at the end with a hopeful note to it and a satisfying story emotionally. 
Oh, and you definitely did. The other thing I thought was interesting was thinking about the 1950s. And as we live in 2020 and everyone shares everything, it's sort of hard to remember that back then people didn't talk about a lot of these things and that women didn't have a lot of rights. Like when Millicent goes to the bank and she wants to open a savings account and she can't even do that without her husband's approval. And same with like speaking to the doctor, everything has to be approved by a man. And it's just, it's hard to comprehend that. And I felt like you did a great job of putting that in the forefront of the story to remind the reader that times were very different then. Oh, good. And, and I think you raised an interesting point that there was a lot of secrecy. Families had bad things happen and they didn't talk about them. And you're making a good comparison as to how it is today where our lives are pretty much open books on social media and everything, right? Definitely. And so it's sort of interesting to be drawn back to a time where people hardly spoke about anything. And I think that's partly why Millicent also kept that with her and didn't really process it and deal with it because people weren't speaking about things and she didn't have an outlet for it. Yes. She had her one best friend, Pauline, a secondary character in the book, because she could tell anything to, but beyond that, no. Right. She exactly. And didn't even always even feel like she could talk with her husband completely about it all. That's true. Well, you must have had to do a lot of research. Want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I did do a lot of research. And research is one thing that a lot of historical authors love to do. And and I did love doing the research. And sometimes you have to just pull the reins on it and say, okay, got to write. But I, I guess I started with the big sweeping overview of that late World War II period and the post-war period. And even to the extent that Millicent had been born in the 1920s and her childhood affected her life as all of ours do, I had to go back to the 20s and the 30s and have some sense of that as well. And then when I was doing that research of the post-war period, I came across this phenomenon. It was like this trend in what's called prefabricated homes. And they're not mobile homes or, or trailers. They're, they're actually completely constructed homes from the foundation on up. But during this period, they were being built as prefabricated home kits. And a family could literally move into a house that started and um, be in it within a week. And, and the reason this was, was because after the war, the servicemen all came back and everything, and construction had been halted for a number of years while resources were put into the war effort. And so there was a shortage on homes. And, and really, the country during that time felt victorious with the war, but also they'd come through the depression and the crash and those things for years. And so it was this real sense of optimism and moving ahead and and people getting married younger and starting families and it was all about the families and everything and so these homes really took off and i found that really interesting my husband and i drove and look at looked at some homes that had been built in the 50s and still exist and that is millie and her husband's business that they began so there was that and then of course i had to look at what women underwent. You've already touched on that some. And so I read oral histories and written histories uh, of, by women, of things they said themselves. And, and one of the things that came out of that, I would say as a big trend was 
how some women felt confined. They felt confined in these suburbs, some, some of them. Um, they felt confined if they couldn't work outside of the home. So Millie has some of that. She, she actually loves her home, though, and she loves homemaking. She loves being a mother, and she, she actually enjoys the cooking and all of those things. It's not that she's anti-homemaker. She just wanted to have it all. She wanted both. She wanted to be able to take care of her home and family and also have an income and work outside of the home. So there was a lot of that in the research. And then finally, I guess, the big thing was maternity, you know, what it was like for women expecting during that era and what the hospitals were like and, and what maternity is like today, because of course there's that past and present part, as I mentioned with the granddaughter and the modern day being pregnant too. And so there was um, a lot of books that I read. I did interviews, whether it was interviewing someone in an expert of the prefab homes or experts on maternity, there was a lot. With respect to Millie working, I think she loved her job, and so she didn't really want to have to completely give up her job when Jane came along. But also, I think, and she was a little young for this, but the war, so many women worked. And so then to kind of come around after the war is done, and they're now all being told, we can't work anymore, you need to be home, and you need to stay with your children, was probably a shock to a lot of women, and they were wanting to be able to try to do it all. You're absolutely right. There are sources that, that, that confirm that, that especially in the manufacturing industry where the Rosie's Riveters and everything had been in building planes and, and trucks and, and whatnot. Uh, then the men came home and uh, the men were expected to go back and do it. And, and many women lost their jobs. Well, and Dennis's friend who said, you know, you're going to take a man's job. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective. I know. Yeah, I'd gotten that from the research that I read as well. Well, you evoke a very strong sense of place in the book, bringing Cincinnati to life. And I was curious if there was some connection and you mentioned you were born there. But Mm -hmm. was it fun to represent your city? Oh, it was. In some ways, I feel like it's a little bit of a love letter to Cincinnati. I only lived there until I was 10. But you know, during those those formative years, we have a lot of memories, I think, of childhood and, and everything. And I actually was in a writing class a, a couple years ago with the instructor named Jocelyn Jackson, who is a New York Times bestselling author. And she had said that when she was giving a class on sense of place, said that if you write about a place where you have a visceral connection to it, that can make the, the sense of place in the story even stronger. And I really enjoyed writing about Cincinnati and going back and, and then doing some research on the side about it as well for the, for the book. And I was surprised at how little memories would pop up, whether it was going to graders for ice cream, which is a Cincinnati thing to do, or going to Union Terminal. These things that were used as descriptions in my book originated in some childhood memory I might have had, a lot of them, not all of them. And then also Cincinnati, I think, too, was critical to Millicent's own life in her family because back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Cincinnati was a huge brewery town. That is, beer brewing was a big industry. And so when Prohibition hit 
it devastated a lot of families and not only the, the brewers, but the suppliers to the brewers and everything. And so in my story, and this didn't really happen in my family, it's all made up, but in my story, her family had been devastated by prohibition. And that is why she had an impoverished upbringing. I did not realize that Cincinnati had had breweries before Prohibition. I, that was something I was completely unfamiliar with. You know, I learned that too. And I even lived in Ohio during fourth grade Ohio state history mm-hmm. class that we had. And, and I don't remember learning that. And I don't remember anyone in my family ever talking about it, but I found it fascinating. And they've, they've really done some work in that city now to bring that back. There, there are breweries now you can go and have craft beers and stuff. It's, it's fun. It's a fun place. And I didn't realize that Kroger was based originally in Cincinnati. Yes, it is. And I think it still is now the largest grocery chain in the country, if I'm not mistaken. Well, that's where I shop regularly here. So I was like, I did not know they were based in Ohio. So what was the highlight of writing Millicent Glenn's Last Wish? I guess one thing that resonates with me, it kind of came as a surprise to me, actually, was, you know how the story is about three generations of women? There's, there's Millicent and her, her daughter, Jane, and there's the granddaughter, Kelsey. But it really wasn't until I already had it completely done. In fact, had edited it with my editor at the publishing house and everything where I realized I sat back and I thought it's actually on some level about five generations of women. And that's because Millie, and I use the name interchangeably, Millie Millicent, her, her mother appears in the book at the beginning And then there's a couple flashbacks of her with her mother too, back to childhood. So there's her mother and then there's her and her daughter and her granddaughter. And then ultimately the baby that's coming along with Kelsey and that's five generations. And it really came from my heart, I guess, because one of the things is, is I'm from a five generation family. When I was born in Cincinnati, I was the fifth generation and we, we had a professional photographer take our picture and everything. And I'm sitting on I'm a baby sitting on the lap of my great-great-grandmother. You know, there's my father and my grandfather, my great-grandfather and her. And and then interestingly, and this is really rare, I mean, the picture actually got in the newspaper. And then when I became a grandmother some years ago, we had a five-generation family again. And it's just really unusual. So at this point, though, when we got our, our picture taken, I was the grandma. So I was sort of the one in the center generation. And, and so the whole generational thing is almost in my DNA. And yet I didn't realize that there were five generations represented in this book. Uh, they didn't all live together. They weren't all alive at the same time in the story. But there are five generations uh, referenced I would definitely think that five generations would be very uncommon. That is not something you see very much. I know. And um, a couple of people in my family before I was born got married young and, and, and that probably helped or maybe longevity helped. I, I don't know. I, I'm now the, I'm personally now the eldest of, of the generation. So we don't have five generations at this time anymore, but we did when my, grandchildren were born. 
Well, I do think people married younger, and so it would be easier to have more generations. But then a lot of times they didn't live as long. So you're right. I think it's a combination of the longevity of life and then also marrying younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably. So how long did it take you to write this book? It took me about four and a half years, I, I guess. And that's also working full time. I I work at a law firm in a marketing capacity and I've been with this firm for more than 20 years. And so my writing schedule is on evenings or on weekends or staycation. I, I take my vacation time and a lot of it is used for writing. I like, like I can take say a week off from work and have two weekends banking it on one on the front end, one on the back end. And that gives me nine days where I get into a zone. And Cindy, I literally write for 10 to 14 hours every single day. And I don't leave the house, but to maybe go for a walk in the morning and, and eat. And uh, that's where I get the bulk of, say, if I'm drafting a lot of chapters, I get the bulk of it done then. Or if I'm editing, I get the bulk of it done in, in times like that or three-day weekends here and there. That's amazing, because that's a long time to sit and just continue to write for 12 hours. It is. It's kind of, it kind of amazes me that I can do it too, but I get so in this zone that literally it can be 12 o'clock at night or 1 o'clock in the morning, and I, and I can feel like I just want to keep writing. I want to keep going and going, but my eyes just have to close. Oh, yeah, sure. You reach your limit where you're like, okay, I've got to go to bed and then tomorrow I'll wake up and keep going. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then I get up at 5.30 or 6 the next morning and go again. Was there anything about the publishing journey that surprised you? You know, I'm one of these authors who over the years, I started writing when my, my kids left the nest and in my free time again. And I'm one of those writers who has two books that I wrote before this one that got published. So I've been working at this for a long time. But what has surprised me is, and very pleasantly so, is how warm and welcoming and supportive the writing community is. Whether it's people like you who support authors or it's the, the bookstores and it's the, the other writers who've come before me, other authors who share their inspiration and the writing conferences I've attended. I mean, I've just been blown away at the immense support of the whole writing community and the readers community. I hear that all the time from authors. And I just... That, I think that's one of the things that I like so much about the industry is that it is such a welcoming group of people, just as you were saying, the readers, the writers, even you know a lot of the publicists. It's just a very inclusive group and supportive. You know, everybody's trying to build everybody up, which is it's a nice thing to be a part of. Yes, I love it. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah, one of the things that I found that really helped me with this book that I hadn't done with the first two. And and this again goes back to the class I took with Jocelyn Jackson. Uh, She told us when we were, when the class was almost over, she said, if you get nothing else out of this class, 
meet up with some of the people that are your classmates now and form a critique group. And that's not the only way you can form a critique group. But once I, I got in, in a critique group where there were three other aspiring authors that focused on historical fiction, and, and we to this day meet monthly, even if it's virtual, but we critique each other's work. And, and while you can have other people who aren't writers read your stuff and give you some feedback, I really found that having other writers read it provides a kind of insight like no other. And what was effective for me too was reading their work. And, and you can see in other people's work that's coming along in draft after draft how the writing of fiction really works. And so I would say, get a critique group and then obviously never give up. I'm, I'm the example of that. I do think the never give up is also a very good piece of advice that you just need to keep writing and keep trying till that particular book resonates with someone. Yeah, I learned as much from the rejections over the years as I did from any other way. So what do you like to do when you're not writing or reading? Well, I love to be with my grandchildren and my sons and uh, my husband and my family. I also just enjoy hanging out. I do a pretty good commute to work and have some stress with a career. And so I love just having vacation in my own backyard sometimes where, say, on a, a Saturday, I can sit outside and read a book and then come in and, and write in the afternoon in my home office or something like that. I'm not one that can write on a laptop anywhere I go. I, I, I just, I, I'm not one that goes to a bookshop or anything. I have to write in my office. It's kind of a quirk, but I, I love spending time outside in the sun and the water and, and uh, reading and of course travel from time to time. Yes. Yeah, something that hopefully will begin again soon. Are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on something that is another past and present book that's a dual timeline, this time going back to the jazz age and also having a modern uh, storyline. So it's, again, past and present with a family drama. And that's really all I can say about it at this time. But I'm thinking jazz age and, and modern time. Well, I really like dual timeline stories. I feel like that's an effective way to tell a story. They usually wrap up so well at the end with the two different stories coming together. I, that's one of my favorite types of books to read. Oh, that, that's, that's awesome. Then we're, we're one of kind there because I love them too. It's like the best of both. You get the historical part and then you get like a contemporary family drama or whatever too. And I just, I, I really love them. It's always interesting to me to see where the present day, what year the present day is going to be set in, because some are set very current and some are set in like 2000 or 1990. And it's just kind of interesting to hear why the author chose what they did and then to see what's happening in that particular year. Yeah. And they're really a challenge to write. I can tell you that when say something happens in one period and then, then you end up changing it and change the timeline a little bit. And then you got to go back and you got to change it in the other storyline too, and get that all to work out. It can, it can be a challenge. 
Well, and getting the ages of the characters correct. You know, if you're sw- switching your years, then to yeah. make sure that would actually work. Because every once in a while, it seems like that didn't totally make it all the way through in a book. And you're like, wait a minute, I don't think that they could possibly <laughs> be that age with that time. So it's got to be tricky. There's a lot more that goes into that than I think you originally realize when you're reading them. There really is. I'm so happy that you've joined me. And before we wrap up, I would love to hear a little bit about what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, okay. Well, one of my favorite dual timeline books, especially one that came out last year, was the guest book by Sarah Blake. And it goes back to the 1930s and into World War II. And and then there's this modern day generation that has inherited a vacation home off the coast of Maine. And what this modern generation learns is that there are secrets that their their four founders or ancestors, whatever you want to call them, from the 1930s had. And ultimately, it's a story that's very relevant today, I think, with it being about class and racism and other things over the eras. Um, I, I, it's a like a 500-page book. It's not a fast read, but it's so beautifully written. And then one that I think it's sort of a modern tearjerker, and I, and I love a book that makes me feel emotional, is by Colleen Oakley called You Were There Too. And it's an it's a interesting love story and just one that it, it has a whole unique uh, premise that I won't give away, but, but I think readers w- would love it if they looked it up, You Were There Too. And then finally, because my book is set in Cincinnati, one that I really loved, and it's completely different from mine or, or any of these others, but it's called Winch. And it came out a few years ago by Dolan Perkins Valdez. And it's a story that takes place before the Civil War. And these, I think, it, they, I think that the people lived in, in Georgia, but the master of the plantations would take their slave mistresses up north of the Ohio River into the Cincinnati area of Ohio during the 1800s to this like resort. And the slaves were made to go with their masters for this getaway to this resort and then be there in this state that that was free. And it's just so fascinating uh, and just beautifully written. It's one of my favorite books. Is it fiction or nonfiction? It's fiction, but it's definitely based on real life research that the author did. They're, like the, the resort actually did exist and actually did draw slave owners to it. I'm going to have to look that one up. I'm not familiar with it at all. And I really liked Sarah Blake's book and definitely social commentary that is very relevant now. Yeah, for sure. And you might remember The Postmistress that she wrote some years ago, too. I I love all of her books. I like her books, too. I think she's a beautiful writer. Yes, really lovely. I saw her on book tour with this one. And it was interesting. Her family actually did have a house like this. The, the, the house that she describes is one that she's very familiar with, although the story was fictional. 
Well, I definitely enjoyed that one. And I remember last year it got a lot of press. Well, Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate your time. And it was so fun to talk with you about Millicent Glenn's Last Wish. And I'm just so excited for it to get out in the world. Oh, thank you. I have really enjoyed talking with you too. I can see we like a lot of the same things. I agree completely, Tori. And I'm so glad you joined me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Tori's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in my show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.